Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Martin Luther once wrote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. In the... In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, in verse 30, we read about a man who asked the Apostle Paul probably the most important question anyone could ever ask. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That question is perhaps the most important question that you will ever face, what must you do to be saved? How is it that you, a sinner, can be made right with God? And the reason why I say this is important is because if you do not answer this question the right way, hear me, if you don't answer this question the right way, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. If in the end you cannot answer this question right, nothing matters. Because the truth is that all of mankind, all of mankind, if they are not in Christ, they are willfully in rebellion to a holy and righteous and just God. And because of that, God, who is completely holy and just, must by His nature at some point deal with their sin. That means at some point in the future, they will die as we all will. 
And they will come face to face with a holy, righteous, and just God who will judge them according to their own sin if they're not in Christ. And the result will be for God's wrath that He has stored up against them will be poured out on them as they're they're cast into eternal torment. That is what awaits those who were not saved. That is why this question is so vitally important to us. Because if we, if we don't get this right, it doesn't matter how successful you are in your life. It doesn't. doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter if you achieve all of your goals and check off all of your dreams. I did all that. It doesn't matter how well-liked you are in your family, in your community, It doesn't matter if if you have the happiest possible life and every day is a dream for you and every day is a great day. It doesn't matter how many kids you have. It doesn't matter how many grandkids you have. It doesn't matter how many Facebook followers you have. It doesn't matter if you live a life where you experience everything you ever wanted to experience to the fullest extent you can. Right? You can have all good days and never have a bad day. If you do not find out the way to be saved from your sins, ultimately your life here and now is pointless. It is meaningless. You can be the greatest philanthropist who has ever existed and leave behind billions of dollars and have touched the lives of billions of people for positive reasons. But if you don't get this right, your life is a tragic and monumental waste of time. Because in the end, nothing of your achievements will last. Nothing that you have accomplished will last. It will all be wiped away. All that will matter on that day is are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? So the greatest question that any person can ever face, the greatest question that all of mankind will ever come to terms with is what must I do to be saved? And that, brothers and sisters, is the question that Martin Luther had asked An Augustinian monk in the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany, 500 years ago, was wrestling with that question, what must I do to be saved? You see, Martin Luther was studying the Scriptures, and he'd come to understand that there were some inconsistencies in how the Bible answers that question and how the Catholic Church had evolved to answer that question. Martin Luther and others realized that the Bible said one thing about salvation, but then the church traditions and the office of the the Pope was saying something else. And I want you to think about this. The most important question a person could ask was met with two radically different answers inside of the same faith tradition. You talk about confusion. Within the same religious context, the answer to the most important question a person can ask was confused by a fundamental contradiction between the Bible and what church tradition was actually saying. This is a very vexing problem. Because as we said, if you get the answer wrong, all is lost. That is the unvarnished truth. If you get the answer wrong, you're not going to be saved. And it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how devout you are or sincere. A lot of people in our culture today think sincerity is equal to faith. It's not. No matter how many good works you do, no matter how many, if you're the nicest person who's ever lived, no matter what religious experiences you might have had when you were a child, whatever visions you might have seen, none of those things matter if 
this question is not right. And so the conflict between what the Word of God says and what the Catholic Church was saying, right, was particularly troubling to Martin Luther. But Martin Luther was a man who loved the Word of God, and he loved the church. And he sought to reconcile these issues together. So in 1517, he wrote down his concerns and his perspectives on a document called the 95 Thesis. He nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And he did so not in an effort to be rebellious, as we've talked about, but really in an effort to start a conversation. He wanted to debate the issues. He wanted to talk about the inconsistency he saw between the Word of God and what the church was teaching about justification. All he was doing was trying to start a dialogue, but little did he know that in God's sovereignty that he would use this act of nailing this document to the door to create an unstoppable movement that changed the entire world and the entire course of human history. You see, God not only used the Reformation to change the church and the practice of faith, it changed politics, right? It changed governments. It changed entire economies. Have you heard of the Protestant work ethic? The reason why the Western nations became known as hardworking industrious is because everybody believed that because I am one of God's elect, I need to bear that in the fruit of my life by working hard. It changed the, the economy of the world. It changed educational systems. It changed social structures and institutions. It changed entire nations. The entire world from top to bottom was changed by this one seemingly insignificant event. As we said before, of the 2.2 billion people who are claiming to be Christian in the world around us today, right? the vast majority of them are either Catholics or Protestants. And what I mean by Protestant, what I'm talking about is, is Christians who have a historical or theological connection uh, that goes all the way back to the events and the resulting reformation of the church. This was an event that changed the entire world. In fact, we're in this room right now because of what happened on October 31st, 1517. Right? I stand before you preaching the word today in English and not in Latin because of what happened on that day. You own a copy of your own scriptures. Every single one of you has a Bible of your own because of what happened on that day. Because at one point, it was illegal for you, laymen, people who aren't in the, the clergy, to have scriptures. We live in a country today, at least for now, that still protects a person's right to freedom of religion regardless of what that religion is because of what happened then. That event changed how the world works. It even changed how we see the world. October 15th, I mean, 31st, 1517 was a day that changed everything because of the reformation of the church that followed. But perhaps the most important of all the changes that took place between that moment and now was the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The recovery of what, what it means to be saved. The Reformation was, had, the, the, it was the Reformation that brought back to light the gospel of grace. In fact, the Latin expression that exemplifies this the best is post tenebris lux, which means out of the darkness, light. You see, out of the darkness of the corruption of the Catholic tradition, the light of the true gospel and how a person could be saved was rekindled. The light of the gospel shone forth once again in history. And this gospel was expressed very clearly and succinctly in five Latin slogans 
that came out of the Reformation that we call the five solas. And the easiest way that I've found to remember these is to say you were saved by grace alone or sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, and it's all for the glory of God alone or soli deo gloria. And all of this is, is made known to us and revealed to us by our final authority of truth in all matters of faith and life, which is sola scriptura or scripture alone. You see, the Reformation was about a return to the heart of the gospel and, and the answer to the most important question of what must I do to be saved? And as a result, we appeal to the scriptures alone for the answer. And what the scriptures tell us is we are not saved by what we do. We are not saved by our own merit. We are not saved by our obedience to a set of rules. We're not saved by our religious experiences. We're not saved by our religious activities. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is it. Our, out of the Reformation came these life-changing and world-altering slogans that reflect the gospel that was written by God Himself. And the slogans of sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus, and soli deo gloria, all reflect the work of many men who sought to recover the truth about the only way that there is to be saved. That is why as we approach this Easter, we're in this mini-series on the five solas, preparing our hearts for the celebration of the resurrection of Christ by walking through these slogans and what it means for the gospel of grace. And in the first part, we began talking about sola scriptura, which means the scripture alone is our final authority for all matters of faith. We've settled that, right? It is not church tradition. It is not the papacy. It's not culture. It's certainly not our emotions. It's not our opinions. And it's not the government. Scripture alone, right? God's word to us is authoritative, infallible, and sufficient for us. And that means there is no higher authority there is no higher authority for us to appeal to uh, to answer our questions regarding the gospel and faith and life, especially what it means to be saved. And in the first week, we talked about how that was true 500 years ago, and it is still true today. In fact, there is a saying also that's still relevant today. It's called semper reformanda, which means always reforming. The church, the Reformation that started 500 years ago, is not finished as it makes its way around the world. Sola Scriptura is still relevant today as it was 500 years ago. The Bible is God's word and final authority for all things. And, and last week we spent some time talking about sola gratia, or grace alone, right? which, which is the fact that we are saved not by anything within us, because nothing in us merits salvation. There's nothing in us that compels God to save us. There's nothing in us that causes God to love us. But God, by His own love and by His own grace, saved us. We are saved by His amazing, His amazing grace alone. Now this week, we're going to talk about sola fide, or faith alone. Now in order for us to wrap our heads around this, I want to share with you a little bit more about Martin Luther's story because there's more to him than just simply nailing a document to the door. In fact, it's important for us to really ask the question of how did he, we get here? How did he get to that point? How did Martin Luther get to the place where he, this nondescript Augustinian monk, changes the world? 
How did he even end up as an Augustinian monk? And and, and in light of that, how did he end up in a place as a monk and a seminary professor that he would end up challenging a thousand years of church traditions? Because the very thing that we need to realize is this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen just by itself. You know, people don't do things randomly as much as we'd like to think otherwise. In fact, they're, they're, we, we believe in the law of cause and effect, right? There must be a cause for this. Something, there, was, there must be a context. Something had to transform him and shape him into the man that compelled him to write down the 95 Thesis and go public with them. And more than that, something had to cause him to stand firm against the church when it came down on him with all of its power. That's the thing we have to keep in mind. The church pronounced him to be a heretic, and that was punishable by death at that time. And he, and he was urged by many people close to him to recant of his ideas. But he, in the face of dire persecution, refused and he stood his ground. In fact, he, he stood before a church council uh, at the Diet of Worms. Everybody says Diet of Worms, but right, which sounds really gross, but it's actually... The Diet of Worms, it's a place in Germany. He said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Now what what would cause him to say that? What would cause him to be so bold in spite of the danger that he faced? Well, to understand that, let's go back a little bit in history and learn a little bit more about what brought him there. Martin Luther was born in a middle-class family, and historically, at this point in history, that was a new phenomenon to have a middle class. But because he was in the middle class, his family was able to send him off to the university to get an education. And in 1501, at the age of 17, uh, he entered the University of Erfurt because his father desired for him to become a lawyer. He wanted him to know the law. And so in 1505, he received his master's degree and then enrolled in law school. But later that same year, something happened that would change the direction of Martin Luther's life, ultimately also the course of human history. On July the 2nd, 1505, Martin Luther was returning to the university on the back of his horse after a trip home. And while he was on his way, he got caught up in a thunderstorm with no shelter to go to nearby. And it was during this thunderstorm, a bolt of lightning struck the ground very near to him, knocking him off of his horse. And Martin Luther believed in that moment he was about to die. And he was terrified of death. He was was terrified of death because he was terrified of God's divine judgment. Because he knew, he knew within his heart that if he died in that moment where he was going to go, he was going to go to hell. And so in the middle of this storm, in his terror, he cries out, Help, St. Anna! I will become a monk. He prayed to one of the Catholic saints to save him and vowed in return to become a member of the clergy. Well, he did survive the storm, no thanks to St. Anna. And Martin Luther believed that his cry for help was actually a vow that he could not break. And so, true to his word, 15 days later, he left law school and he sold all of his books and he entered St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt, July 17, 1505. He became a monk as part of the Augustinian order, and he embraced his new life with complete dedication and complete zeal. He devoted himself to fasting, long hours of prayers, pilgrimages, and frequent confessions. And what you need to understand about Martin Luther is that he had a deep 
deep dread of God's divine justice. He was terrified of God's justice. And he was keenly aware of his own sinful nature, and he was terrified of dying before he could be right with with God. And so he threw himself wholeheartedly into this life as a monk. Not only would he confess his sins, but he would at times he would spend six hours in the confessional. Martin Luther would confess every little thought and every little sin, and this practice got so bad, right, that the priests would say to him, "No, you can't confess today." They would tell him, go away until you do something wrong and do something really wrong. Then you can confess. But the truth is Martin Luther had a deep conviction of his sin and he understood how ugly his sin was. And not just his acts, but his thoughts of sin as well. And as a result, Martin Luther did everything the church prescribed for him to do to ease his conscience. He began to live a life of self-denial, denying himself every possible pleasure. He refused to eat anything except what was basically necessary for him to survive. That was it. He would sleep many nights on a stone floor without blankets, uh, laying on the floor to punish his body into submission. He even, it was even said that he slept outside one night in a snowstorm, nearly freezing to death in order to try to punish himself and, and to overcome the sin, that, the, the sinful nature that he had. History records Martin Luther being so brutal to his own body in an attempt to overcome his guilt that he, that, that, that he, he, nearly, he nearly died. His health deteriorated to the point where he almost died. He, because of his guilt and sin and the knowledge of a holy God, he said, those were two torturers that would never leave him. No matter what, where he went, No matter what he did, he could not escape the conviction of his conscience. He was a sinner and he knew it, and he wasn't able to to fix it. Well, in 1510, he did a pilgrimage to Rome in order, hopefully, to ease his conscience and find salvation. And while he was there, he did all the things. He purchased the indulgences. He visited all the holy sites. He viewed all of the relics. He even took it upon himself to ascend the 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 Scala Sancta, or the Holy Stairs. The Holy Stairs, supposedly the same stairs that Jesus had ascended when He appeared before Pilate. According to to fables, the steps had been removed from Jerusalem uh, and, and brought to Rome, and the priests claimed that God forgave those people of their sins if they climbed on the stairs on their knees in an act of devotion and and in piety. In fact, the the top of the stairs were permanently discolored by by blood because most people who attempted this feat, by the time they got to the the top of the steps, their knees were bloodied by rubbing off all the skin off and it was bloodied from the climb. And this is exactly what Martin Luther did. He climbed the steps on his knees, and as he went, he repeated the Lord's Prayer over and over again, kissing each step as he went, seeking desperately to be at peace with God. And when he reached the top step, he looked back and thought to himself, with all that agony, who knows if that's even true. After all that he'd done, he felt no closer to God. He felt felt no less guilty. But Martin Luther continued to press on. He continued to work in an effort to make God love him, make God accept him. Lord, please accept me. If the church said something, said to do something, he did it. But still his consciousness of a sin would never, ever, ever leave him. Not as a monk, not as a priest shepherding a congregation and presiding over mass, not as a professor of theology. Nothing he, he did would, 
would, would remove from him his overwhelming sense of dread and, and guilt for his sin. He later confessed that he hated the righteousness of God. He hated the righteousness of God and he was angry with God because he couldn't overcome the guilt that he felt that was laid upon him. It seemed that the harder he worked, the more he was aware and how, how desperate his situation it was. The, the very work that he thought would bring peace to him only made him feel worse. But year after year, Martin Luther would press on, trying desperately to escape the judgment of, and the wrath of God. And he worked himself into a health crisis and he continued to deny himself all of pleasures of life and, and all this in an effort to make himself right with God, but to no avail. Martin Luther said that if it was possible to save yourself by monkery, then I would have been that monk. He said that this was a period of time of deep spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made of Him the jailer and the hangman of my poor soul. Martin Luther was so desperate to be saved from his sin, but he found no hope in anything. He believed that God could never love him. But as a professor of theology, Luther continued to study the Scriptures. And he read and studied and meditated upon the book of Romans because he was teaching through the book of Romans. And he began to see a different understanding emerge about salvation early on as he read the text. As he completed and wrestled with Paul's words in Romans 1.17 that states, the righteous shall live by faith, Luther finally realized that salvation was not something earned right, by working for it that rather salvation is the gift for the guilty, not the reward for the righteous. Man was not saved by good works, but simply by trusting in the finished work of Christ. And, and in the darkness of this deep spiritual despair, in the quagmire of his brokenness, he found the light of the Scriptures, that justification was, about, was, was not about what he could do for God, Justification or salvation was about trusting in what God had already done through Jesus Christ. Simply by faith alone. Sola fide. And at this, Martin Luther finally was set free from his torment. As we sang this morning about our chains falling off and being set free. This is what Martin Luther felt when he finally embraced the, the gospel of grace. He was set free from the guilt that had plagued him his entire adult life, the guilt that, that punished him and almost killed him. Martin Luther said, When I discovered that the righteous shall live by faith, I was born again of the Holy Spirit, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. You see, that's the reason why Martin Luther did what he did. That is what prompted him to take the steps to nail the document to the door. That's what happened to cause him to boldly stand against the church as it responded in condemnation and threats of physical violence. Martin Luther stood in the darkness of his guilt for years, torturing himself, trying to make himself right with God. And then he, by the grace of God, inadvertently stumbles upon the light of the gospel the light of the truth that mankind is justified, that mankind is saved, not by what he does for God, not by punishing himself, not by anything else, but sola fide, by faith alone. And, and what we need to understand is the church didn't argue that people weren't saved by faith. Right? The church would say, you need to have faith. They would say, you, know, you must have faith, but they would say, you also need 
works that you need confession and you need to go to mass and you need baptism and you need indulgences and penance and the sacraments of the church and you need all of these other things prescribed by tradition. You were saved by faith and something else, not by faith alone. But as Martin Luther studied the scriptures in the letter to Romans, he began to see that the Catholic Church, was what they were teaching was not true. They were wrong. The Bible makes it clear the righteous live by and are justified by faith alone and, and, and not by any works of, of the law or keeping rules. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 is the part of the letter where Paul has already made it clear that everyone in the world is under sin and under the wrath of God both the Gentiles and the Jews, not just one group of people, all of them, universally. There's no one immune. In fact, Paul says in uh, beginning in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That right there, brothers and sisters, is the bad news. And the thing that we need to remember is the gospel always begins with the bad news. Without the bad news, the good news doesn't make any sense, by the way. And the bad news is that everyone is a sinner, and everyone is, is and, and, and no one, not anyone, is going to be able to save themselves. No one, it says, even seeks for God. And then Paul says, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul in this text helps us understand the real purpose of the law. You see, the law was given not to save you. The law was given to help you see who you really are. The law was given as a mirror so that you can look upon God's righteous standard and see how sinful you really are. It's to help you see God's divine nature and His righteousness and to help you see the righteousness that is required for you to have a relationship with God. And the law was given to help you to see God's holiness and by comparison how unholy you are in light of that. And that is what Martin Luther saw in the law. He saw a holy, righteous, and just God, and he saw himself as the exact opposite of that. Regardless of what he did, regardless of his good works, regardless of his intentions. We live in a world that where intentions mean everything to people. We think that good intentions are enough to get us over the line. Intentions don't mean anything when it comes to this. Regardless of commitment and even discipline, what he discovered is that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he worked, no matter how much he punished himself, he couldn't fix it. He couldn't make himself clean in the eyes of God by keeping the law, which is exactly what Paul says. For by the works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight. No one is going to be good enough and do enough good stuff to justify himself before God. No one's going to keep enough rules to make God accept them. Now, hear me. That's all-inclusive. No one 
And Paul says the purpose of the law is to expose that, to bring that truth to light. The law exposes how broken and wretched we really are. It exposes the truth that we can't make ourselves right with God. And it also removes from us all of our reasons and excuses. In fact, Paul says that there that is says the law is there so that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What Paul is saying is that the law actually makes everyone shut up and be quiet before God. That's what he's communicating. What he's saying is when you come face to face with God, when you see Him finally, you won't have a word to say in your own defense. Why? Because you will be convicted by the overwhelming evidence that's, that's levied against you. You won't have anything to say. There's going to be so much evidence to convict you that you won't even know where to begin. No one will be able to look at God and say, God, I deserve to go to heaven because I'm a good person. It won't even cross their minds. The law shuts, up, shuts us up and makes us defenseless before a holy God. When you stand before God, you're reminded of every little thing that you have ever done in your life. Look at the Old Testament prophets when they stand and they see God. They immediately recognize how sinful they are and how much danger they're in. If you stand before God, what excuse could you possibly give for the things you've done in your life? None. The law, con- the law and the conviction you will face will render you speechless. All mouths, all mouths will be shut. And so Paul says, and that's how it's going to be for the entire world. He says the entire world will be held accountable to God, the whole world. The world, all of it, will be exposed to the law. The world will stand silently before God as the charges are read against it. The whole world is completely covered in sin and will have no defense because the law, the world will know without question that they're guilty and there isn't anything they can do to fix it on their own. You see, this is the universal problem that everyone faces. This is universal of all human beings that have ever lived except one, and that's Jesus Christ. This is a universal problem that everyone faces and not any of us on our own can solve. And so it has nothing to do with our ability to save ourselves. It has nothing to do with how hard you work. It has nothing to do with how compassionate you are. It has nothing to do with how much you loathe yourself at times and how much you punish your own body. It has nothing to do with how how good of a person you might become. You can do nothing on your own to save yourself. You are guilty and defenseless before God. And then Paul says, but now. I love it when Paul turns the corner and says, but. But now. The righteousness of God. Notice it's not the righteousness of man. It's not self-righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known. It has been revealed. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is something that bears reflection here. Because God's righteousness has always been demonstrated by the law. God's righteousness has always been apparent in the law. But Paul says there's now a revelation that of this righteousness, a new facet of it that is offered to mankind as a gift that is apart from the law. A righteousness that comes not by work, but, by, but, but through Jesus Christ apart from the law. 
Now, he says, although the law and the prophets or the Old Testament bear witness to this righteousness, that it was apparent in the Scriptures, but Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so here it is. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. The righteousness of God is available not through obedience to the law, not by fasting, not by by indulgences, not by torturing yourself, not by climbing a set of stairs on your bloody knees, not by your earnest attempts to make everyone in the world love you. The perfect righteousness of God Himself is available. But how is it available? It says, through what? Through faith. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for in it, or in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is manifested from faith, for faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. By the way, Paul, when he says that, is quoting the Old Testament. It's not anything new. The righteousness of God is revealed and manifested by the gospel and is available through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, what we need to ask is why all this talk about righteousness, or especially the righteousness of God. You see, what we need to think about is, is, is that when we talk about the gospel, most people automatically think about the fact that Jesus died for our sins, and He did. He, he died to pay our penalty, and by His blood we are washed clean, and that is true. But what we need to understand is being sinless and being washed clean is not enough to reconcile us to God. We must be more than just without sin. We must also be righteous before God. We must be perfect in every possible way to be reconciled to God. But as the law reveals, we don't even stand a chance. It's not even close. You don't even remember when you lost your righteousness. It was gone before you even remember. We don't have it within us, never mind the fact that we still have to overcome our sins. We don't have the ability to be fully righteous like God. Right? What we need is the righteousness of Christ. You see, the gospel is not just that Christ died for my sins. It's also that He lived for my righteousness. You see, in Christ is the complete solution of all that you need. Jesus did die for our sins, and He bore in His body the wrath of God we deserve. Right? But before that, He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And He kept the law that we're not able to keep. And He fulfilled the covenant that must be fulfilled that we couldn't fulfill. He, in His own work, secured for us the righteousness we need to be reconciled to God. And this righteousness is granted to us, not because of what we can do, but by faith in Christ. On the cross, what we need to realize an exchange takes place. Our sins are credited to Christ, and by faith, His righteousness is then credited to us. And by faith in Christ, our sins are washed clean, Right? And then we are then clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We are made completely righteous. You understand that if you're in Christ, you have been made completely righteous. Not because of what you do, and not because of what you've done, but by faith in what Christ has done for you. That's why Paul says the righteousness, right? Those, 
that's why Paul says, the righteous, those people who are righteous, who live in Christ, shall live by faith. And so Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice this, for all who, what? Believe. Paul says, this righteousness is available to all who believe. Anyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Everyone who comes to a saving faith in Christ. And understand what this means. This righteousness is for everyone who believes in Christ. Not those who attend a certain number of masses. right? Not for those who do penance. Not for those who take a vow of poverty. Not those who torture their bodies. This righteousness of God that saves, that justifies, is for all who believe. All who put their faith in the righteousness of God. That righteousness itself is available to them. And notice what it says. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, Paul is going to take us right back and remind us of the bad news. You need to know the bad news before the good news makes any sense. And the bad news, all have sinned, all have fallen short and pronounced guilty. Even the very best of us. Even the people that we would esteem highly and say that they're good people. I once was talking to someone about a person who had died. And I said, like, I regretted that I really wish I would have spent more time, you know, preaching the gospel to them and telling them. And my friend rebuked me and said, wait a minute. He's a good person, right? He was a good guy. Look at all the good things that he did. Look at how he did this and how he helped other people, right? And how many people really owed so much to him because he was such a good person. And I just said, pardon me, but good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven, right? That's the big difference. Saved people go to heaven. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how much good stuff that you do, every one of us is fallen because, as the Bible makes it clear, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the glorious standard that He has set forth. Every single one of us, even the best among us. And so Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then look at this, and are justified, which means to be declared righteous, justified by His grace as a gift. If there's anything that would cause you to say, praise the Lord, that ought to be it right there, right? Remember what Paul said last week in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. And it's not your own doing, it's something else. It's not by what you did, it is a gift, a free gift of God, not the result of works, not the result of rituals, not the result of rites or anything else. Paul says, there is no distinction we are all the same. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but likewise are justified by His grace as a gift. And this gift is made available through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you got to understand what Paul's driving at here. This is, like, this is crucial for us. This gift is made possible through the redemption that is in no other than Jesus Christ. Right? This is where all the world has to just be quiet now. There, all roads do not lead to God. There's one, because only one made redemption. Only one actually paid the price. 
Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price to set you free, not anyone else. Jesus is the one who ransomed you, right? It was all Jesus, right? And notice it says, in Jesus, that whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. What you need to understand is what a propitiation is. A propitiation is just a weird word to us, but really what it meant in that time is an offering or an action done by someone to appease God, right? It was something done to appease God, typically to try to appease His wrath or His justice. Lord, here's an offering. Please don't kill me. Kind of the idea. It's a sin offering or an act of devotion in an effort to appease or assuage the anger of God. And what you have to understand is Martin Luther spent years of his life trying to do acts of propitiation on his own. He tried to appease God by his own actions. He tried to keep the law by himself. That's why he tortured his body. He spent so much time in confession. He was trying to appease God. I think we can all be guilty of that from time to time when we feel that we've done something wrong. We feel we need to appease God or make propitiation. That's what he was guilty of. And he come to understand he can't do it. He couldn't appease God by his own effort. But look at what Paul says. Right? This, is, this is one of the most important and profound truths of the gospel. It was God who put forward Christ as a propitiation. Let that settle into your heart. Let that take root in your life. God Himself put forward His own Son as an offering to appease His own wrath and justice that we deserve. You talk about a statement that should make your head spin. Please don't miss this. You cannot make propitiation for yourself. You can't do enough to appease God and His wrath against you, which means you were helpless and hopeless by your very nature. That's the bad news. But the good news is, is God did it for you. You couldn't do it, so God did it for you. You couldn't appease God. And so He took it upon Himself and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to be the offering by His own blood to satisfy His own wrath against you. Think about that. God loved you so much that He took upon Himself to put forward an unimaginably costly sacrifice to appease His holy wrath that's rightfully reserved for and directed towards you. As the prophet says, it pleased Him to crush Him for our benefit. If there is a truth in the Bible that just doesn't fit inside my head, that's the one. That's the one that I struggle with the most. I don't struggle with the Trinity. I don't struggle with, 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 the, um, with God being near, but also being transcendent. I don't struggle with His sovereignty. I don't struggle with His aseity, as my theology students know what I'm talking about. I don't struggle with any of those things. What I struggle with is why would He do that for us? God made Himself, His righteousness available, His own righteousness that you need available by satisfying His own wrath against you by the blood of His own Son so that you could be reconciled. Now, I could spend all day just on that. But suffice it to say that God's gift to you is the gift of grace, and that He makes it available to you by sending His Son to the earth 
become a sacrifice that satisfies His wrath, and this gift is yours and is available to you and is received by you, as Paul says, through faith. And that's it. That's how you get it. That's how it becomes your... That's that's how you're made right with God. You receive it by faith. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You just receive it by faith. You believe in God and you believe what God has done for you in Christ Jesus and you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, trusting in Him and Him alone. You receive that gift of, of God by faith. You're justified Let that settle in. Let that truth carry you out of here. You are justified in the eyes of God and made righteous, not by what you can do for yourself, but by faith alone in what Christ has accomplished. And then Paul says, God did it this way because this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. See, he didn't immediately bring his final judgment and condemnation on the world because of sin. Instead, he waited and he held out, pouring out his wrath so that he could show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be, look at this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the part we really have to come to terms with here because the most perplexing question in the universe is how does a holy and righteous and just God have fellowship with vile sinners? How is that even possible? How does God reconcile himself to the likes of us? Because think about God is absolutely righteous, which means he's just. And ultimately, because of that, he cannot just simply let your sins go and sweep them under the rug. It can't be just a matter of like turning a blind eye. Sin must be and will be punished. It must be dealt with. And the thing is, we all know it. We all have a sense of justice. We want justice to be done. If somebody comes in your house and takes your stuff, you want something to happen, right? If someone harms someone you love, you want the law enforcement to get involved and justice to be done. And if you go to court, you're not going to be okay with a judge excusing someone who in cold blood murdered someone you love. You're just not going to be okay with that. In fact, you would say that this person is not just, that they are corrupt, We expect that judges on the earth to to still be just. And it's the same expectation we have when it comes to heaven as well. We all, every one of us, internally expect that Hitler and Stalin and those who engage in child sex trafficking, all of them are going to have justice done upon them. That's what we expect for God to do. We expect that God doesn't give them a pass simply just because they're like, I'm sorry. Why? Why? Because we expect God to be just, right? It's part of His nature, so God must be just. But God being just means we all have a problem if we're not in Christ. And the problem, all of us, is that we're guilty. We have all broken the law. We have sinned and rebelled against God, which means God is bound by His own nature to deal with our sin. You see, the most terrifying attribute of God is the fact that God is good. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute. How can God being good be a terrifying thing? It's terrifying that He is good because you're not. right? And because He's good, we know that justice must be done. 
Him being good is bad news because you rightly deserve the full fury of His wrath. You rightly deserve God's divine judgment and punishment for your sin. You deserve all of us to be sent to hell right now. In fact, really, it's funny. People ask me oftentimes, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, good people is a really relative term, but let me ask you another question. Instead of asking why God allows bad things to happen, you should be asking the question, why didn't God kill you in your sleep last night for the sins you committed yesterday? The fact that you're breathing today is another gift that He, he spared you from that. Right? God in His divine forbearance doesn't immediately give you what you deserve, but instead put forward His own Son as a sacrifice, a propitiation for your sin. So how does God who who is just have fellowship with sinful man by not only being just, but being the justifier of those who need it. Those who have faith in Christ. The truth is God does deal with your sin on the cross. But instead of giving you what you deserve for your sin, He sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. He took every one of your sins on the cross. You were in your sin with no way to escape, and God made a way for you to be saved. And the only way you avail yourself of all of that is by faith in Christ. Right? The only thing you can do is accept it by faith. God is just and deals with our sin, but He's also the loving justifier who out of His love sacrificed His own Son on your behalf. People will say, I can't believe God would send me to hell just because I won't believe in Him. You're being sent to hell because you already deserve it. But you doubly deserve it if you can look on the face of Christ who sacrificed His life for you and spit on Him and say, I don't want you. Right? God is both the one who holds the world accountable and is the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. It is God, by His own righteous and sovereign actions, that opens the door of heavens, of heaven for us to walk through by Sola fide, or faith alone. And with that, my urgent call to all of you to always examine your heart and make sure that you're in the faith. And if you're someone who has been resisting that or fighting back on that, or you feel like, you know what, I thought I was right with God because I'm doing this and I'm doing that and going to church nine times a week and I'm, do, you know, and I'm working you know, really hard. And I'm, if, if that's your attitude, you need to repent of that and realize there's not anything that you can do and there's nothing in you that allows you to be made right with God on your own. That God, by His grace, sent His Son to do for you what you couldn't do. And the only hope that you have is to turn to Him in repentance and faith. Turn to God and throw yourself on your knees in front of the cross and say, Lord, save me. That's all you have. And guess what? Brothers and sisters, as you live this Christian life, and as you're confident in your hope, but then you turn around and you fall down and make a mess of your life by, by sinning. It's the same message, by the way. You're not going to be saved by turning to God and dusting yourself off and making yourself better. You're going to be saved by continually holding on to the same hope that saved you in the first place, which is, Lord, it's got to be you because I can't do it. Lord, rescue me from this body of sin. Lord, change my heart. It's continually by us walking through the same thing repentance and faith. Let us, at this moment, 
rid ourselves of the idea of the spiritual penalty box that we're going to put ourselves in when we make a mess, right? Some days you're going to sin and repent of that sin, and then you're going to have to repent of that sin tomorrow and the next day and sometimes a thousand times in a row. But what you need to remember, it is not your ability to not sin that saves you. It is the grace of God and your faith in Him that, that saves you. If there's a message that this church and the world around us desperately needs to hear, it is that one. Right? We need to stop pretending that God has a plan to make us better people. He, he's come to make dead people alive. That only happens by His grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, let us proclaim that message loud and clear for the world around us. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 